Hello, my name is Jim Reynolds, and you are on the Christian Life Empowerment Podcast. I'm going to be doing something a little bit different today. Normally, I would have a guest that I'm talking to, but today, I'm going to give you some information that really I'd rather not give out, because it's a little bit embarrassing. It's it's called a testimony, and when you do a testimony, you either tell the truth or you lie, and today I'm going to, well, I'm going to tell the truth, and to make sure I do that, I'm going to actually read my testimony out of a very short book that I wrote called This Is Going to Hurt, and I wrote this book in 2014 after I had done an evangelism series, and, and I used my testimony in the evangelism series, and a friend of mine walked up and said, hey, you really ought to put this, you write this down, put this in a book. And so I put all this incriminating evidence in one place, in this little book, and today I'm going to read it to you. So, hey, here we go. Chapter 1. It was a beautiful June morning. I was young and felt invincible. Walking outside of my house, I looked at my faded yellow Ford Comet and then at my shiny black motorbike. It was an easy decision. Today, I'm taking the bike. I strapped on my full-face helmet and took off. It was only a Honda 450, but it was quick and fun to ride. As I grabbed a handful of throttle, it jumped off the line like a racehorse out of the gate. And on that gorgeous summer morning, the world was in the palm of my hands. Life was a holiday cruise liner, and <laughs> I was the captain. I came to the top of a long hill and started down the other side. As I got near the bottom, a large green Oldsmobile pulled right out in front of me. It was one of those impossible moments when you try everything at once. Back brake, front brake, gear down, veer to the left, into the other lane. Nothing's working. There's a car hurtling towards me head on. I swerved back into my lane with only one option left. I put the bike down. It was as if everything was moving in slow motion. The last thing I remember thinking before I hit the car was... This is gonna hurt. I barely remember being loaded under the life flight helicopter. I was flown to a manual hospital in Portland, Oregon. When they wheeled me in from the helicopter, I was a bloody mess. My full face helmet had been ripped off of my head as I went through the back window of the Oldsmobile. They had to put 13 metal plates in my face and surgeons then had to rebuild my nose. The strap from my helmet had broken my jaw and doctors had to put it back in place and wire it shut. The femur of my right leg had been snapped in half like a toothpick. My knee was crushed so badly that they had to amputate my right leg above the knee. This was the most fortunate day of my life. Chapter 2. From my earliest years, I remember my mother reading stories to my brothers and me. Bible stories, nature stories, Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories that taught us about God, morality, and honesty. I remember every night she would kneel with us by our beds and pray. Every weekend would find us in church. I was taught from birth to know and love God. At 11 years of age, my father walked away from God and in the process walked away from my mother. Divorce is very hard on children, and the three of us boys were not immune from the challenges created from a broken home. I would go so far as to say that the divorce during that crucial time of our lives helped to shape us for better or for worse into who we are today. 
Unfortunately, during my teenage years, I decided to rebel. I was going through a rough time with the divorce, step-parents, and not to mention teenage hormones. I cannot blame the rebellion on my father or the divorce, actually, because time and time again throughout my life, God gave me clear and distinct choices. I can look back at the 26 years that I ignored and walked away from God, and I can see over and over again where God showed me that he was still a presence in my life and only a prayer away. At age 13, I moved in with my father. My mother's rules seemed very confining compared to the relative ease I felt at Dad's. Dad had great parties in his large basement with a built-in bar. I soon became very close to my stepbrother, who gave me my first beer. He was a great guy, and I still love him today. He had no idea he was doing anything wrong. This was the life he knew. But for me, it was a hundred miles away from the devout Christian lifestyle that I had grown up in, where alcohol, tobacco, and drugs were the tools of the devil, and not to be touched under any circumstance. I did not turn from a good Christian boy into a hellion overnight. It was a slow process that involved one compromise after another. Until by the age of 17, I had decided to drop out of school, move out on my own, and party where there were no rules. I finally had freedom, freedom to do whatever I pleased, anytime, anywhere. Oh, beautiful, glorious freedom. It is amazing that we buy into this incredible false delusion. In Romans 6.16, Paul tells us that we are slaves to who we obey, either sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Let me tell you how free I was. I had dropped out of school and enslaved myself to a low-wage job. I started smoking cigarettes and became addicted. I looked for freedom in cocaine, pot, acid, meth, and alcohol. The job I worked kept me under the poverty level, but I still liked to get high as if I was rich. I started selling cocaine and pot. I had a knack for spotting a fellow druggie. I would go into nightclubs on weekends with a fake ID and pick people right out of the crowd, pull them aside, and offer them whatever I was selling that night. I was right about the person 99% of the time and would make an easy sale. I made thousands of dollars selling drugs, yet I can remember so many times waking up in the morning and literally closing my fist and hitting myself in the head, disgusted with myself because I had spent all of my money again. Soon, however, the cobwebs would clear, the hangover would diminish, and I would make a new plan. You see, I was young and invincible. I had my whole life ahead of me, and besides, I was free. See, I told you this book was quick. We're already past the second chapter. Before we move forward, I just wanted to say a little bit about divorce. I know that that sometimes relationships just don't work out. I understand that. There's, There's biblical reasons for that. There's other reasons for that. That's between you and your spouse and you and God. What what I just wanted to kind of give you an understanding from a child, because I was a child when, when my parents divorced, and, and just to let you know a little bit how I felt. And and the way I felt is I felt that I had had lost my trust in my parents. The people that I trusted the most, it was if, if, if that got ripped out from under me and I was, I felt like I was on my own and I had to make my own decisions. And at, at 11 years old, I wasn't capable of making my own decisions, not smart ones anyway. And so what had happened to me is, is without my permission, my life was changed forever. 
And I just want to encourage anybody that, that is going through a divorce, thinking about a divorce or has divorced, that you just, you really throw some love and care at your children. And, and make sure that they're going to be okay because they're very precious. And, and some of them will get through things without a scathe, you know, but some of them, some of them, it may affect them for the rest of their life. And, and really, you don't want to do anything that negatively affects your children. And, and I know my parents didn't mean to do anything that negatively affected me. And, and maybe I'm all the better for it, but I was hurt. I was hurt very bad. And so just, just give them a little extra love when they're in that situation. Now, talking about freedom, if freedom was something that I was looking for, freedom was something that I was after, and I, and I just didn't realize, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, that when God gives you a Bible and he gives you the Ten Commandments, he doesn't do this to be restrictive. He, he lays down a path that you should walk on. But see what you've got to realize, this is a path through a minefield. Life is a minefield. There's all kinds of pits and valleys and, and problems that we can run into. And when we walk on that path God gives us, yes, we still may have some problems, but God is going to be pulling us through those problems and we're going to be in the arms of God. And life is going to be so much better if we can just stay on that path that goes through those minefields, those, those guardrails that God sets up. They're not to hold us back. They're not to confine us. They're from, to keep us from going over the edge of the cliff, which is yeah, where I went. And I'll talk about that in chapter three. Chapter three. False freedom is the state I found myself in on that fateful day in June, when in a moment an Oldsmobile with an uninsured, unlicensed driver pulled out in front of me at the bottom of a hill and changed my life forever. As I said, it was the most fortunate day of my life. If I would have died that day, I would have been forever lost, no hope of salvation, no hope of an afterlife, only a resurrection to a terrifying and fearful judgment. God gave me another chance. I remember waking up in the hospital with a new perspective. I looked at myself and thought, wow, it may be time to change my life. Maybe I should give God a chance. The memories of my childhood and my Christian background came flooding back to me. But then I thought, eh, what will my friends say? They will say, I'm weak. I can hear it now. Did you hear about Jim? He got in a wreck on his bike and then he found religion. He became a Jesus freak. I guess he couldn't handle it. Poor guy. No, my pride would have none of that. I was on a mission to make sure everyone knew that I could handle anything. Oh, foolish pride. My girlfriend of only three months stayed with me through the aftermath of this life-changing event, and we married a year later. I would not advise anyone else to make this significant of a life choice so close to a catastrophic event, but for us it worked out well. As I write this, we are going on 27 incredible years of marriage. My marriage to Belinda is only one of the many times God has watched and directed my path, even when I had turned my back on him. I continued to support myself and my drug habit by selling pot. I had a friend that grew pot in his shed, and he would grow the pot and I would sell it. This arrangement worked out good for both of us. The problem was that my conscience was finally starting to work. When I had married Belinda, I married her son Brock as well. It was a package deal. 
He was three years old when I first met him, and he soon stole my heart. I would have days after surgery that I was in tremendous pain. There were days when I would get discouraged and because of my situation, and then Brock would walk into the room and light it up with a smile. I did not know how I would have made it through those times without him. I started to feel wrong about the people that came in and out of the house buying pot. The illegal drug trade is not a pretty place for adults, much less a four-year-old child. I prayed one day. I said, God, if you can help me find a way to support my family without dealing drugs, I will quit selling. Shortly after that, I received $20,000 from the driver of the Oldsmobile that had pulled out in front of me. I was told I would never see this money, but something happened at the last minute and my lawyer found a loophole. I have never sold an illegal substance since that day. Chapter 4 At this point you would have thought I would have seen God working, believed that he cared for me, and started trusting him to lead in my life. But then you would have had to remember how incredibly selfish human nature is. Yes, I would never sell pot or anything else again, but I would still smoke it like Cheech and Chong. I love my wife, I love my son, and you could even say that in some way I, I love God. But I love myself even more. I love to get high, whether it was from booze, pot, coke, or all of the above. Here is the problem with being stoned, no matter what your favorite drug or drink is. Being stoned affects your ability to use higher reasoning powers. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is honestly think about some of the stupid stunts you pulled when you were stoned or drunk. I remember a story that came on the news about a young mother that got stoned on pot and then took her baby out to the car, set the car seat with the baby in it on top of the car, and drove away. At the first corner, the baby came off the roof of the car and rolled onto the intersection. Fortunately, the child was not harmed, but wow, what a stupid mistake. Here is the problem. When we take drugs that affect our mind, we slow down and even shut off our ability to communicate with the source of life and knowledge, God. We are unable to make good decisions and right choices. This is the state of mind I chose to live in, trusting myself instead of God. It was around four years after my accident that I received a letter from the American Red Cross. I opened it and it read, Mr. Reynolds. We are sorry to inform you that the blood we supplied to the hospital for your surgery came from a man that is HIV positive. I don't remember the rest of the letter, but I must say that God had my attention now. It is hard to describe the flood of emotions that go through you in a time like that. In the four years preceding this, I had married and had a child. My first thought was that all of us could be infected. I hadn't talked to God in a long time, but that day I, I started to pray. Prayer is an amazing thing. No matter what you've done or where you've been or who you are, God will listen. It amazes me that God, with all his responsibilities of managing the universe and all the billions of creatures in it, still has time to sit down beside me and ask, Jim, what's wrong and how can I help? I remember after praying that a feeling of comfort came over me. And it was as if God said, it's going to be okay. I remember telling my mother that God said it was going to be all right. My wife and I drove down to the Red Cross building. We went into a clean white room where a man sat us down and apologized on behalf of the Red Cross. He assured us that they'd do a much better job now when they screen blood samples and donors. 
They brought in a nurse and drew a blood sample from me. It was probably only three days, but it seemed more like three years before we got the results from the test. The good news is, prayer works. I'm not sure why I did not get infected with the AIDS virus, but the results came back negative. Did the man who gave blood contract AIDS after he gave the blood? Do I have some sort of AIDS-resistant gene, or did God have a reason for my continued existence? I didn't know. What I did know is that I had a new chance at life, an opportunity to turn over a new leaf, a chance to get my life right with God. I would love to end this tale here and tell you that I did all of that, but that Cinderella story would be a lie. Before I read chapter 5, I just want to, to go over a little bit about that experience. Because there's been a few times in my life where I thought I was going to die. I mean, I, I've had a guy pull a gun out and put it to my head. That was that was some scary stuff. I, I went over the side of what I thought was a 100-foot cliff, but only turned out to be a, like a 16-foot cliff in a semi-truck. I thought I was going to die then. But this... This whole HIV thing, you got to remember, this happened in the 90s. And in the early 90s, HIV was a death sentence. I mean, everybody that, that I knew that had gotten it, a friend of mine's brother, and then, then a friend of mine that also was in a motorcycle wreck and got a transfusion just like I did, Jim Winkin, died of AIDS. And so it, it, was, it was quite scary. But it was amazing because I, I, I will never forget when I talked to God about that and and i just had this this comfort and this peaceful feeling that just came over me and just impermeated me and and i told my mother and and my mother knew my lifestyle at the time and so when i told her that god told me it was going to be okay she's like yeah okay <laughs> i don't i don't know how she really felt but i kind of felt well she probably didn't really buy that but it was amazing that i was okay because it just wasn't expected after the guy that, that gave blood to me had HIV. So I had a new lease on life. And and I really wish that I would have taken it and changed my life. You see, none of us live in a bubble. And the things that we do affect the people around us, in, sometimes in, in tremendous ways. And you're going to see in the next chapter how how I affected somebody else's life because because I didn't go the direction that God was trying to lead me, trying to pull me in. And I'd watched him pulling me throughout my life and and showing me and, and, and let me know, Jim, I'm here, I'm here, here, look this way. But but I just kept ignoring him. And and well, let's read chapter five and, and see what happens. Chapter five. Here's the problem for me and many others on this planet. We are in love with ourselves. This is our natural condition. We were born this way. Think about it. Sharing does not come natural. It has to be taught. As babies, we cried to get what we wanted. We fussed. We pouted when we didn't get our own way. As we grew older, we learned to race for the front of the line. We became adults, and most of us realized that in order to get what we want, there were times that we had to let others get what they want. We call this generosity. And so we go through life fooling ourselves and sometimes even others. If we were brutally honest with ourselves, when we live apart from God, we rarely do anything that is truly selfless. This is our natural sinful condition and the condition I chose to stay in after I found out that the danger was past and that I did not have HIV. I went back to a life of me first, a life of getting high and once again a life without God. I would continue life for the next nine years pretty much as I had 
always lived. You see, honestly, I lived for the weekends. Monday was the worst, but Friday it was woohoo, buy a bottle and find some pot. Have a good time. Oh, I coached youth sports. This made me feel like I was being generous with my time, and it also satisfied my competitive drive. I worked a full-time job to support my wife, my children, my drug, my alcohol, and my nicotine habits. I looked like a stand-up guy who worked hard, played hard, and took care of business. I did not even realize how selfish I really was until I, I looked back years later on the incident. I will never forget. See, I was standing by my bedroom door one night, and my 11-year-old son was down the hall. Out of the blue, he said, Dad, we don't go to church that much. I said, No, son, we don't. He said, We should go to church more. I was taken aback by this. I knew that I was only a few years older than my son when I no longer wanted to go to church. I knew that it was important to give my kids a good foundation in faith and in the knowledge of God like my mother had given me. It was the foundation that took me to prayer when I found I might have HIV. It was the found, that foundation that kept me back from the brink of the heavy duty crime and addictions that I had watched some of my friends and acquaintances become involved in. I knew it was essential for my children to know God, but in order to teach my children how to pray in order to teach them about their creator, I would have to change my lifestyle or be a hypocrite. I chose not to change. I told myself when my son said that we should start going to church that I was going to hate myself if I didn't take advantage of this golden opportunity. A few years later, I had good reason to hate myself. The only thing that keeps that prophecy from being fulfilled is God's grace and forgiveness. Chapter 6 It was three to four years later that my wife and I started to figure out that our son, the same boy that wanted to go to church, was experimenting with drugs and alcohol. In all my years, I have never seen anyone so young go down so hard, so fast. That boy didn't just try a little pot and beer and call it good. No, he quickly graduated to cocaine, heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. He wasn't happy just doing a little... He did a lot. When he was 16, his mother and I would wake up in the morning wondering if our son had made it home. We had tried every punishment short of beating him to keep him in line and nothing seemed to work. In my state of addiction, I did not know what to do. As I mentioned earlier, when you are on mind-altering drugs, whether it is pot or alcohol, meth or cocaine, your higher powers of reasoning are impaired. You may be able to get up and go to work every day and think that you can manage life just fine. The problem comes when, you need, when the help you need is beyond human intervention. The difficulty comes when the insight you need will only originate through divine perception. If I could have had a connection with God, I would have been able to find a solution sooner. But God makes connections with us through our mind, and I spent too much of my time altering my ability to think. Therefore, the only solution I had was one that came from a clouded brain. One day, my son came home high as a kite. He was yelling at his mother and hitting the walls with his fist. He went into his bedroom and slammed the door. I had had it. And of course, I had no competent solution. So I went into his room, grabbed him by the shirt, lifted him up against the wall and screamed, You can't do this anymore. He looked at me with crazy eyes and started slamming his own head against the wall over and over yelling, you can't hurt me. You can't hurt me. Slowly, slowly I let him down. I took my hands off of him and turned away. 
I had never felt more helpless in all of my life. I, I didn't know where to turn or what to do. I, I walked around for the next couple of days in kind of a stupor. My son visited my mother later that week without the drugs. He, he was a great kid with a big heart and a love for family, especially his grandparents who had taken him to church every chance they got when he was younger. While visiting his grandmother that week, he made the mistake of taking some of his drugs and leaving them where grandma could find them. I'll never forget my mom calling me on the phone that night and saying simply, we need to talk. My mother had used a tone of voice that I hadn't heard in years. Not mean, not bossy, just matter of fact. It was a tone I remember from childhood when I knew there was no option. I went to her house and we talked. She told me what she had found and then she told me I needed to find a way to help my son and stated, you need to get that boy to church. Driving home on that wet, dark night with the radio off, hearing only the hum of the motor and the steady squeak of the wipers against the windshield, I realized that before I could help my son, I had to let God help me. That night, kneeling by my bed, I totally and completely surrendered. I told God that I would do anything, say anything, and go anywhere that he asked. I was beat. I was broken. And I was completely helpless. Now, it's not as though I this helplessness came about all of a sudden, as though for years I had been going along just fine, and then whammo, here I am on my knees with no options. You see, I had been helpless my whole life, only now was I aware of it. Since I have surrendered, I have learned that every breath is a gift from God. The orbit of the planets, the birth of a new star, the galaxy and its beauty, and every atom that makes up my being is a gift. Life itself exists only through the will of God. For me to believe that I was strong enough to handle life's problems on my own was an incredible delusion. What I gave up was the silly notion that I was in control. The only thing I'm truly in control of is the choice to let God be in control or not. Everything else that happens in my life is a result of this one choice. God's word is very clear on this point. In Luke eleven twenty three, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. Paul states in Romans 6, as mentioned before, that you are either a servant of sin or a servant of righteousness. In Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mountain, he states that you cannot serve two masters. In other words, either God controls your life or Satan, one master or the other. A third choice of self-control does not exist. As I knelt and prayed, I gave control to God. A weight was lifted off of my shoulders and I felt lighter than air. My eyes started to water, my heart started to soften, and my mind that had so long been clouded started to clear. My way forward seemed evident. As I put my troubles in the hands of God, I gave up guilt for grace. I gave up lead for gold. I gave up failure for success. Before I go to the seventh and final chapter, I, I just want to to give you a little more insight into what happened during that period of time. My son had had been addicted to some pretty heavy duty drugs and and after I became sober, I was able to think more clearly and I found a drug and alcohol rehabilitation lockup program for him. And oh, it was, I had three choices with this lockup program. I could, I could have what they call the mountain men come and get him and take him into the lockup. I could have, I could lie to him 
and tell him I was taking him somewhere else and end up at the lockup, or I could just tell him the truth. Well, I he was home, and, and I called a friend over, and and I told him. I says I said to my son, we're going to take you, and we're going to try to get you some help. And so he says, okay, Dad, let me go outside and have a cigarette, and then we'll go. So he went outside, lit up a cigarette, and boom, that little turkey, he was sprinting down the road. Fortunately, my friend was able to catch him, and I jumped in my truck, and I drove over to where my friend had a hold of him, and, and he put him in the truck. And as I'm driving to, to this lockup center, my son is just just hitting me with both fists. And I'm not even blocking him. I'm just driving the truck. My son is bawling. I'm bawling. It was the worst moment of my life. It was it was just the most horrible, horrible thing. You, you got to imagine this is this is one of my boys. Okay, this is this is one of my best friends. This is my hunting partner. This is my fishing partner. And I'm I'm forcing him to go to this lockup place. And and oh, it was just terrible. And we get there. And and he had to walk in on his own. He didn't know that at the time, or he would have went the other way. But but he had to walk in on his own. So I put him at the front door, and he walked in, and he he turned around, and he flipped me off, and he says, "I effing hate you." And that's the last I heard from him for a while, till I could go visit, which he really didn't want to see me, and about broke a father's heart. A few years later, I was writing out the check for the the last payment that I had to make the the center that had uh, this rehabilitation center, and my son was there, and I I look at him, I say, boy, I says this is the last check I've been paying for two years to to pay this 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 place off, and he looked at me, he says, he said, Dad, it was worth it. You saved my life. Chapter 7. Change does not come easy. For most of us, it only comes in the wake of a crisis. A good friend of mine likes to say that pain is a good motivator for change, and if you are like me, it, it takes an awful lot of pain to want to change. I do not know if there could have ever been enough pain and misery inflicted on me personally to bring me to my knees, not because I am that tough, I'm just that stubborn. The pain I experienced while watching my son is probably the only thing that could have hurt me bad enough to open the door for God to save me. This moment will come to all of us sooner or later, from the busy executive with the corner office that has no time for God, to the bum laying in the gutter, to the staunch atheist who has created websites and blogs in order to tell everybody that God is dead. We are all God's children. He does not give up easily. God knows our heart. He knows what drove us to our misguided worldview. And he knows the lies the enemy of souls has caused us to believe. He knows that it is these lies that bring us to our current pathetic condition. But whatever means necessary, God will reach out to us, not just once, but as many times as it takes to get results. When was the last time God spoke to you? Was it through a child? Was there a close call that almost took your life? Was it a whispering breeze or a rippling stream? Did you gain comfort, strength, hope? You may ask how I could possibly know that God speaks to you, and I will tell you it is because he is God, and that's what he does. Look at what he says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and have supper with him. He doesn't say that I will come in and punish him or I will come in and scold him. He simply says, I will come in and hang out and have a bite to eat, shoot the breeze, and then help you live the most amazing, incredible life you've ever imagined. Life on this side of sobriety, forgiveness, and grace is, is beautiful and fulfilling beyond all words. As I write this, it has been eight years from the rainy, dark night when I finally put my life in the hands of God. I have found peace, and I am truly happy. I am looking forward to my second grandchild and proud of both of my sons, who, as they read the Bible and look to God for answers, have become better men. I have found that the ultimate goal in the human experience is total and complete trust in God. Trust that my mistakes and sins are forgiven. Trust that whatever hard times come, God will pull me through. Trust that no matter how much this life is going to hurt, it is but a short and painful prelude to a time when God will wipe away all tears, a time when the earth will be made new, a time when we will finally and forever be home. The end.